Alright everyone, welcome back to Critical Care Scenarios. I'm Brandon Miller, back with Brian Bowen. And we've got an interesting guest for you this week. We're here with uh, Dr. Min LeCong. Uh, Min is, a, a by training, a rural generalist physician down in Australia and does some telehealth and remote primary healthcare down there. But uh, in particular for today, uh, has worked with the Royal Flying Doctor Service for the past 15 years or so. Uh, the Royal Flying Doctors do kind of aeromedical retrieval um, throughout the Australian outback, which is really kind of a unique role, not something we really have in the States where most transport medicine is done by uh, paramedics usually. But, I mean, there's a whole other level in Australia. There, these are, in some cases, you know, fixed-wing flights of many hours and often done by these uh, specialist physicians such as Min. So Min's going to tell us a little bit about it. And Brian's going to help us out. Uh, Brian, you want to take us away? Um, man, I think so. This Royal Flying Doctor thing and retrieval medicine in general is pretty fascinating to me. This is something I don't think we really have any, even out west in the in the states, we don't have anything similar to this. Can you real quick before we get started with the case? Do you mind just giving us a little bit of background and what is what is the Royal Flying Doctor Service? What is retrieval medicine? What do you do? Like, how, what's your day to day look like? Yeah, sure. No, thanks for having me on the show, guys. Look, um, very briefly, retrieval medicine is um, that there's there's basically um, what it started with uh, what they call the Franco-German model of pre-hospital medicine. So uh, it's quite a while ago now, but I think it dates back to World War Two. But essentially, uh, the French and the Germans decided that in pre-hospital care. Um, having physicians out on the field was was a useful thing and um, uh, the British uh, kind of took that on as well and then here in Australia that that was kind of adopted I guess since we have a um, our tri- uh, a lot of our history from colonization was was from Britain um, and so the kind of the Anglo style of medicine was adopted here and and then that European style of pre-hospital medicine is, is basically predominated here in Australia. Whereas I guess over in America, you have a, um, uh, I guess, like you said, more of a, a model where there's less physician involvement, more paramedics, flight nurses, and so forth. And that's continued. And the dichotomy between the two worlds is, I guess, con- you know, continued throughout. The Royal Flying Doctor Service began in 1928. Um, it was started by a, a Presbyterian minister, who uh, was Reverend John Flynn, and he had done um, outback uh, pastoral care to outback communities, farms, and so forth. And he would ride on a camel or a horse, and he would go out and administer his uh, pastoral care to these folks. And he, he often saw a lot of poor health and lack of health due to the lack of health facilities there. And so he had this vision that somehow... Um, improving healthcare in the remote areas of outback Australia would help um, w- would help these folks and would help actually open up the inland. Um, so he started that as a as essentially yeah a charity organisation back in 1928 in my part of the world in far north Queensland, which is the state that I live in um, at the moment where I do the work. Um, and uh, historically, very interestingly, the the birth of Qantas, um, our, our national air carrier, began in that part of the world too. And the first flying doctor aircraft that was hired for the first year of the trial run of the service was actually one of the first aircraft that Qantas ever owned. 
um, and um, essentially the work has continued, you know, uh, since 1928. And essentially what we do is uh, three arms, which is one is the aeromedical, which is essentially emergency air ambulance type work, but you have a doctor and a flight nurse who go out to the scene of whatever's required, and that can be anything from motor vehicle accidents, which is quite common, unfortunately, to farming, uh, agricultural accidents, so people falling off horses or quad bikes, uh, rolling and, you know, um, and having trauma from that, uh, through to, I guess, things like uh, snake bites, which is, you know, a common uh, risk um, in the Australian outback. Um, and other kinds of, I guess, environmental, toxinological things. So um, snake bites, crocodile bites in the far north is certainly we, we've, we've, we've had them as well. Um, to the medical type things, so sepsis, um, uh, tropical medicine type things, because it's a tropical climate up north where, where I uh, work. Um, and and that's, that's basically it. The, the two other arms is telehealth, so that's where people can call us up ask about, say, I've got, you know, a cough and a cold and what can I do? And there's a unique system where there's a medical chest system that is provided by the government for free to these remote areas, these stations, and we can um, ask them to take medicines out of this box. And that includes anything from analgesics through to antibiotics, uh, through to eye medicine and so forth. So, so that's the second arm. And the third arm is um, a primary healthcare thing. So that's where our nurses and doctors will go out to run clinics in in some of the larger remote towns and do you know basic health care such as vaccinations and what you'd normally see a primary care physician for so yeah that's briefly it how does this usually work for you do you get called to like a scene or do you get called like to a facility sure it's both so basically an aeromedical shift you are on duty for for 12 hours and you have a uh, I guess an on-call phone, which um, uh, the emergency calls are routed through to that phone. So uh, someone on a cattle station who's come off their motorbike, you know, their their relative might call us on that line and activate an emergency, and then we would directly respond to that. So essentially, it's like calling a- an ambulance, and we'd respond to that. Or we have a statewide retrieval coordination system where. Hospitals, you know, doctors in hospitals from around the state in the outback would call them and saying, look, we've got this person who's had an MI or we've got this person who's got septic shock and we need to get them to a tertiary ICU. And that activates um, a mission and then that's passed on to whatever asset is deemed appropriate, whether that be a helicopter mission or a fixed wing mission, which is what we do with the RFDS. And then that, that, so they'll, the coordinators will contact us and goes, look, you know, I've got this pregnant woman or this woman with uh, septic shock or whatever on this remote island and, you know, they need to come during this time period and they'll triage it. So they'll give it a priority. So they'll obviously be critical ones that need to be time urgent. And then there's other ones that are less urgent or elective. And we actually even fly people back to where they came from. So they've had their surgery or whatever, their ICU stay, and, and they need to return back to their, their community, essentially. And, and, and that can be done in a stepwise um, backload fashion. So, so we do both, yeah. Okay, cool. All right, well, um, well, let's do this case then, and we'll kind of see how things go and... and Go from there, okay? So you get a call from a a rancher, is that what you would call him, on a cattle station? 
um, that one of the guys that works for him was out um, on a on a motorbike um, on the station and has had an accident uh, and needs some uh, needs some emergency care. <clears throat> He's a 36 year old guy uh, who was unhelmeted. Um, he was uh, he was thrown from the bike. Um, and, uh, is complaining of, uh, abdominal pain and some difficulty breathing. Uh, you get to, you get there and find him. Um, he is, um, he is, he's breathing somewhat labored. Uh, he's still conscious, but he's confused. Uh, and he's complaining of, uh, some pretty intense abdominal pain. So, uh, walk us through, how would you start to work this up? Sure, no worries. Um, actually, my wife, who's a flying doctor too, she had a very similar case to this just a couple of weeks ago. So, you know, this is a very common situation. Um, so in the pre-hospital setting, out on a remote area, there's been a trauma. It's a single person, not multi-casualty. And uh, assuming that we've arrived there safely and we've gotten to the patient, then, you know, he... he um, actually, what we often do before this is that we kind of get prepared and build up a mental picture of what are the most likely scenarios we're going to face with the initial very brief information. And for those of you know listeners who work in pre-hospital care or transport medicine or, or, or that form of thing, you know you often get a very brief description um, and the story or the full, the reality may actually be a lot better or actually a lot worse than what you actually get. So it's often good to cover both spectrums of the scenario so be prepared for the worst but but obviously hope for the best and in this kind of scenario i'd be prepared that uh, this guy might have a polytrauma presentation including spinal injuries he's had a some kind of a biking accident which obviously can involve either low or high speed and he may actually have been out in the environment for some time before we get there so if say it's summer which is it is now in australia in the outback he might have been out in the sun for quite some time and so it's not uncommon that in those scenarios we get to people and they may actually have some degree of sunburn if not even worse type of burn and degree of dehydration um and and that may actually be the cause of why he's a bit confused and stuff like that he actually might be having some kind of heat related illness so these kind of things are all going through my mind as we're going out to that person because um the story that we you know in i guess in any medicine particularly in critical care often the story that we get initially is only just the tip of the iceberg and that there's could be a whole lot of badness um underneath the surface so um I'd put, I'd do some basic things. If he's not breathe, breathing that well, I'd put on some oxygen whilst putting on some monitoring to him. So the flight nurse is usually attaching the monitoring. We'll put on some oxygen and I'm doing my initial trauma survey. So, you know, covering his airways, breathing circulation and his neurological status and, and, and having a brief um, uh, assessment there. Probably from a pre-hospital viewpoint, even before we get there, we'd get his um, friends and the you know the colleagues there at the at the cattle uh, station to actually do some basics to protect him. So erect a shelter is often we we often recommend that is put up some shade, whether that be between two cars or between a you know erect some kind of a temporary shelter just to get the person out of the sun or the rain sometimes. And just keep them, um, you know, keep their temperature regulation as, as stable as you can, and also um, obviously try to remove any dangerous 
um, issues that might be occurring, you know, if there was fuel leaking from the quad bike or indeed if they actually need to get him off the quad bike or the quad bike needs to get off him, which is sadly is, is a, a common trauma that occurs here in remote Australia. So oxygen goes on, monitoring goes on, and I do my brief initial survey. And usually then after that I get a basic sense of what are the major issues in terms of whether he has a respiratory problem with traumatic chest injuries uh, or whether he's actually got profound shock He's got a tummy that is sore and obviously um, there could be intra-abdominal injury, traumatic injury to major organs such as the spleen and the liver. Um, but in reality, not a lot I can do for that from a definitive viewpoint um, in the remote area and it's more about how do we stabilise and resuscitate him to allow him to get safely to a definitive uh, tr uh, trauma care, so a surgeon with blood bank and so forth. So, yeah, that that would be my initial approach. Okay. So, um, you go, you look at him, you find him. He is uh, he is very red. Um, he looks very hot. He's diaphoretic. Um, he's able to talk to you. He doesn't remember the event, um, and he's a little confused as to uh, time and place. Uh, but he's able to talk to you. He has a patent airway. When you listen to his chest, you hear very diminished uh, breath sounds on the left. Um, Normal-ish sounding on the right, but very, very diminished on the left. And he's, his chest is tender to palpation. Uh, he has palpable but very weak peripheral pulses, but decent uh, central pulses. Um, when you look at him, he has his left leg is sort of shortened and externally rotated. Um, and he's complaining of quite a bit of pain uh, in his left leg. When you, you hook him up to, to monitoring, you got some oxygen on him. Um, you hook him up to monitoring and uh, you find that he's tachycardic, uh, say 120. Um, and a little hypotensive as blood pressure's... Uh, say 80 over 40 sats are um say mid 90s you've got him on a on a non-rebreather mask uh, but he is labored and uh, complaining of pain uh, in his chest and his abdomen uh, and then that leg okay so he's got polytrauma so he's got trauma to his chest his abdo and his leg so at least three different regions um so it means he's had a significant trauma, and so therefore, you know, he he really needs to get to definitive trauma care. And really, what we do is just try to stabilise him so he doesn't deteriorate and maybe improve some of his physiology. So what I would normally do in that situation would be do pre-hospital ultrasound. So this is something that we've been doing for some time now, particularly with portable devices, and uh, it does add a reasonable amount of information that we can do immediately at the scene. And, and what can it add? Like, can it confirm a pneumothorax, hemothorax? Yes. Um, there's a bit of an argument amongst some pre-hospital critical care providers about whether you should make a decision um, based on clinical grounds, which is what you've presented, versus an ultrasound, versus waiting to get a chest X-ray or some you know other kind of traditional imaging. But certainly, in my opinion, pre-hospital ultrasound, um, this is actually the reason why I got into pre-hospital ultrasound was I had a number of tension pneumothoraces in the aircraft where you can't use a stethoscope and you need to figure out, is this person got a pneumothorax that I actually need to do something about? And pre-hospital ultrasound to me has been a game changer for that. Um, it's not a simple thing to learn to diagnose a pneumothorax on ultrasound 
and and a lot of particularly a lot of learners do find it difficult to know whether it's something they can rely upon to make a decision should I put a chest tube should I decompress with a needle and so forth but with uh, time and practice you can get um, to that degree of um, skill and and I certainly think it makes a big difference because previously what we used to do is we just make a decision on clinical grounds or even just on um, low threshold for suspicion so when I first started pre-hospital retrieval medicine, basically they said, look, if you're going to put them on an aircraft that's going to go to altitude and you suspect there might be a pneumothorax, then just put a chest tube in because um, the trapped air will expand with altitude due to the physics laws um, and and basically you will see a simple pneumothorax um, you know, convert to a tension pneumothorax and, and I did actually see that a couple of times, so hence my... Um, my uh, interest in, in learning another modality to try to diagnose this. So I'd scan him and and certainly from what you describe, I'd, I'd assume that um, I'd find some pneumothorax on, on the left and um, then really, it, it, you know, you'd consider decompressing the chest. And a needle is, I guess, a traditional emergency thing, but doing a pre-hospital intercostal catheter or chest strain is something that we all train to do in the Royal Flying Doctor Service, and, and it's a it's a fairly straightforward procedure as, as far as I'm concerned. Um, you can um, argue whether it's, a, you know, a, a, as clean a technique as if you were to do it in a hospital, but um, I've put in, a, you know, hundreds of them, and, and basically um, uh, the military experience and certainly the wilderness experience is that if you do it with fairly clean technique, it's, it's, it's a fairly uncomplicated procedure. So that, that's what I've been thinking for um, the the chest findings, whether there's a hemothorax in there as well. I guess that can also be found on the ultrasound as well as putting in a chest strain. Um, and you see if that helps the hypotension. It may or may not. Um, the other uh, thing to do at this point is looking at airways clear, breathing's all right, now the circulatory thing, and so therefore he has a degree of hypotension and, and perhaps shock. Um, and so looking at the other causes, so whether there's hypervolemia, so into his belly and then maybe his leg, his femur, he might be bleeding into his femoral fracture. And then also obviously considering the other things like the occult kind of shock, which is the neurogenic shock or the, or the shock related to, um, spinal cord injury. Um, so I need to consider that. So to, to kind of rule that out in the initial exam, we'll just see if he has equal movement of, you know, of his limbs, his hands, his feet. He said he's talking and he's breathing, so that's a good thing. So certainly it, it can't be too high a spinal cord injury if he's breathing and talking. Um, and, um, you know, that can help rule out whether there's a degree of, like, neurogenic shock. Hypervolemia, that's really, that, this is really an eternal dilemma in the pre-hospital setting is you're out in the middle of nowhere, someone's a hypervolemic shock, and what, what do you do? You may or may not have blood, and it depends on whether uh, the pre-hospital team has thought about taking blood. With this kind of a call-out, we would normally take at least two units, or if not four units of blood of O negative with us. But sometimes you get diverted to these jobs, so you might be flying out to do some kind of in-hospital transfer. The call comes in, you have to go straight away, and you don't actually have any blood on board. And then really is the dilemma is what kind of volume expansion would or should you do um, in a pre-hospital setting when you actually have no um, definitive surgical um, hemostasis available and you need to take them somewhere. And that might be two, three, four hours away might be the transfer to that trauma surgeon. So you need to preserve, you need to somehow stop the bleeding 
and maybe you know re-expand the volume, but you need to do that carefully. And 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 I think the military experience is what teaches us in certainly in the Australian pre-hospital, is that you know there's this fine balance of of you, you don't want to expand the volume at the sacrifice that you're making the coagulopathy worse. Um, and like I said, my wife had this exact same situation, guy with a splenic rupture, been run over by a motorbike, and, um, you know, it was, I think his systolic was 50 when she got to him, and basically they, they did bring blood. Um, no, actually, no, 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 actually, now that I remember, no, no, they, they actually, they had been diverted. They actually didn't have blood on board, and actually what she did was use a, a vasopressor with some crystalloid just to try to keep him alive. And she actually did an RSI, an, an anaesthetic induction, because he was confused. He was a bit combative. Um, and he ended up did having a, 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 a frontal lobe hemorrhagic contusion. So that was a good call. But it was always this balance about how do you balance the needs of keeping the person alive enough um, but then getting them safely to that definitive care. And, and uh, I guess certainly in pre-hospital medicine in Australia, the, kind of the paradigm of what we used to be taught in ATLS and stuff like that, which is, you know, large volume crystalloid um, fluid resuscitation has, has really gone uh, gone away and that we are trying to do minimal volume resuscitation using things such as TXA, a bit controversial, I know, given the latest evidence that's come out. There's a pre-hospital research study that is supposed to publish next year that was that was done in Australia and New Zealand. I know the Americans published their own pre-hospital study which didn't really show a benefit so it'd be really interesting to see what this Australia and New Zealand so it's called the PATCH trial. We would currently on our protocols give pre-hospital TXA to a patient like this. He's hemodynamically unstable, he's tachycardic, there's a significant mechanism of injury. If we had blood we'd probably give it to him. Um, so he, he would meet that criteria of getting the, uh, you know, one gram loading and then a, a one gram infusion. Um, um, but I have to say the jury's probably still a bit out on whether that's a good thing in a pre-hospital setting. I have to admit that. Um, and, but, uh, yeah, so, so that's it. About his leg, um, at the moment, probably, um, when we have some time, we would probably think about either putting some traction and seeing if that helps. Um, but probably it wouldn't be a huge priority right now. Um, I'd certainly think about more about dealing with the chest first. The abdomen, like I said, that's something that we can't deal with definitively unless it gets really bad and there's some strategies we, we have for that. Um, but uh, the leg... Yeah, basically we think about straightening it with some uh, long splint traction. And that may help reduce some hemorrhage, um, but um, probably the chest and the abdomen are the priorities at the moment. So, um, all right, so you get your ultrasound out and you're going to go look at his chest. Walk me through, what are you looking for to determine if he's got a pneumothorax or a hemothorax? I know it's a little little tough since this is audio, but... Uh, for for folks maybe who don't have the experience uh, or a whole lot of experience, I guess with um, point of care ultrasound, uh, especially in a pre-hospital setting, what what are you looking for? Yeah, sure. Look, um, basically, uh, the first thing I'd recommend if people are kind of interested or wanting to consider at least what what that might 
be a skill set to develop in a pre-hospital setting. There's there's plenty of online um, videos, tutorials, formal tutorials about doing basic lung ultrasound and doing a more abbreviated, I guess, trauma uh, ultrasound, which is what they call the eFast. The FAST was uh, the, the original trauma ultrasound, but the eFast added a, a couple of extra things, including uh, the chest. Um, but But to keep it very simple, what I would do is be looking at at least six areas of each side of the chest, so the right and left side of the chest, so right and left lung, and uh, at least three areas anteriorly, so the top, the middle, and the lower, and then three areas posteriorly, uh, top, middle, and lower. And what I'm looking there, comparing each side, so you said that the left side sounded like there was much less air entry, and and, and to be to be honest, if that was the case, I'd, it, it, it'd be questionable whether doing an ultrasound would add much more. It's often when you can't, that you'll probably recall patients where it's because they're really big barrel chested or it's a noisy environment or something like that, where it may actually be very difficult to actually hear uh, lung sounds. Um, and, and then you, you're kind of guessing if that's all you're really relying upon. Whereas the ultrasound will actually give you a lot more information and in, in those big barrel chested, uh, folks, it, it it is more reliable than your than your stethoscope because you, you can actually see things. And the things that you're looking for is um, what they call lung sliding, and that's the normal sliding of the pleura on the lung surface. And you, and you see that as like this line that that is um, going backwards and forwards um, over the lung, and uh, that's a sign of normal plural lung interaction. So it's a sign that, that that should normally be there and that should be an absence of a pneumothorax if you see that. Um, if if it doesn't look like it's sliding that well in those one of those areas, it, it would make you suspicious for maybe a pneumothorax. And, and, and the trouble here, and this is where people get caught out, is that there are other things that can stop that sliding. There's, you know, lots of things, you know, fibrosis, atelectasis, um, um, and that kind of thing, and so, so, so it is a bit of a trap. So, so just the absence of the lung sliding doesn't necessarily mean that there's a pneumothorax, but there's there's certainly a suspicion there is. Um, and then the next thing you do after that is you use a mode on most ultrasounds called M mode, and what what M mode means is it's a motion mode. It's a way to look for motion on ultrasound, um, and. Uh, there's there's particular appearances of the M mode over ultras over a pneumothorax and versus those and so it's it's what they call the the, the seashore sign which is a normal sign and so that's a normal sign of an interface between the soft tissue above the pleura and the lung and then the the lung below which is um, more of a granular sandy type appearance and the absence of that is what they call the stratosphere sign. Uh, or the barcode sign, so it just looks like a lot of black with lines in between, um, and and um, no definite seashore where there's a demarcation between black and lines in between, and and then a grainy lung below, because there's air in the middle of between that, and so therefore the the sonic appearance is is different in that way. So they're really the two things, and probably the the, the biggest trap, the the second biggest trap is not to look in multiple areas. Often. Some of my colleagues who, who started learning, they would just scan the, 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 the top um, upper third of the chest and go, look, that, that looks all fine. And then 
you know, later they might find that there was actually a pneumothorax and it was a bit lower down. Um, and so therefore scanning in at least six areas on both sides is, is definitely worth doing. So that's that's what I'll be doing for the, uh, the exclusion of a pneumothorax. For a hemothorax, it's pretty straightforward. It's basically a lot of black where there shouldn't be any black. And so most of the normal lung, you really you really shouldn't see, you know, a big collection of black below the pleura because normally it's just air-filled lung and that doesn't um, reflect a lot of um, sonic um, waves. So therefore you won't get a really good picture into the lung. Um, so therefore um, uh, when you see a lot of black, that's because that's because uh, the blood or whatever fluid there is is a good sonic conductor and therefore you'll see, see see a nice collection of black and so that's that's basically what you look for a hemothorax and you can actually figure out how big it is because if you scan in multiple areas you can get an idea of where the boundaries of, of the blackness are and the same thing with a pneumothorax and, and that's really the, the, the next level of ultrasound learning for lungs is to estimate the size of the pneumothorax because you know you can do that on CT you can kind of do it on a chest x-ray even though it's not that accurate um, but with an ultrasound, you can you can actually measure, figure out what the boundaries are to see where's the normal lung and where's, where does it go into um, the border of being, the, the, you know, the, the abnormal pneumothorax side. And then you can get a roughly idea and give it a percentage, like 20, 30 percent of the lung and so forth. Uh, and that can, and I've scanned pneumothoraces, which were small with a flail chest. And because it's small, I decided not to put a chest tube in and, and flow on them just with some analgesia, whether it be a nerve block or some ketamine. Um, and, and, you know, just be prepared to rescan and up in the air if, if you think that the pneumothorax expanded. And, and I've done that. So in the air, I'd rescan them and go, look, it's maybe 10% bigger or something like that, or it hasn't changed size. So therefore, no need to intervene with a chest tube. So, yeah, so that's what I'd basically do. All right. So when you scan, you do see uh, evidence of a hemothorax. Um, I guess you had said sometimes you may manage these conservatively and sometimes you're going to go ahead and put chest tubes in. What's your threshold to how much how much blood do you have to see on this guy before you put a chest tube in him? Well, that's a very good question um, because with a hemothorax, as you know, particularly in a pre-hospital setting, is that if you put a hole in it and stick a drain in it, it's obviously going to come out. And does that encourage it to keep bleeding? Does actually leaving the hemothorax in promote thrombosis and coagulation more than than letting it drain out? So it's 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 a kind of that balance between how much do you want to improve the gas exchange and the re-expansion of the lung versus how much do you want to stop the bleeding? Now theoretically, you can bleed pretty much all your entire blood volume. Um, well, pretty much almost your entire blood volume into your chest. That's that's true. You can bleed to death into your chest. So the argument to say, well, perhaps you shouldn't put a drain in and promote further blood loss um, because you just want to keep it clotted is 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 you know it's, it's a compromise. So so in a, and unfortunately, there's no un, you know I've looked at all the studies that there's really no great evidence-based way to make this decision. It's often a matter of your own clinical experience, the, the location where you are, how quickly you can get to somewhere that can either do definitive surgical care or you can start to replace the blood a lot quicker or you can do something to promote significant hemostasis, whether that be given you know, frozen plasma or cryoprecipitate. Prothrombinex is pretty popular at the moment in rural Australia where um, because often a lot of blood products aren't available freely in remote areas, stocking some of the 
kind of the long-lasting uh, prothrominics uh, or, or, or the you know the the, the clotting factors um, is, is something that, that that has been done in a lot of major trauma. I have to say the evidence base isn't strong to do that, but I know it has been done by a few colleagues. But in terms of when to put a chest tube in for this patient, I'd have to say if um, you know if I scan his chest and I saw that the pneumothorax was you know over fifty percent. I'd put a chest tube in because, one, I'm taking him to air. If he needs to be intubated, it's probably going to make it worse. So you're going to have to deal with the pneumothorax at that size sooner or later, particularly when you're taking him to air. If you're just going to transport him, perhaps you can just watch. But if you're going to take him to air, I know that at least with the altitude elevations that we fly in the normal aeromedical cruise configurations, there's going to be at least a 20 to 30% expansion of that trap gas volume. So if it's 50%, it'll go to 80%. And, and you know, you just have to deal with the tension at some point, which is, you know, that's okay. You can deal with the tension, but it's probably better just to try to get everything prepared as best as you can before you put them on the aircraft and, and go to air. So, um, but the ones that I've just looked at is 10, 20% of, of, I've managed them quite fine conservatively in terms of a pneumothorax. In terms of a hemothorax, yeah, look, I, I, I'd have to say if I, um, it, it's really going to depend. I guess it, it, on this case, it would depend on, I guess, how big the pneumothorax would look. Whether it's, you know, if it's half the chest, that's a real tricky one. Because if I if I don't have any blood, and then I just stick a chest strain, and he just bleeds out, sure, his lung might be expanded, and his gas exchange is great, but he might be in now worse hypovolemic shock. Um, so, but if I have blood to to I guess resuscitate with, and it's not that um, long a flight time, then improving his gas exchange, you know, because you got to think of the person as a whole. Because you know, if he does have a, a traumatic brain injury, a, a you know neurocritical care injury, then him being hypoxic and hypotensive is not good. So you, you, you kind of say, well, okay, maybe by re-expanding his lung with a chest strain, there is a risk that he may continue to bleed out, but you know, I would have given his brain the best chance that he's going to make a meaningful recovery. So so there's no real kind of definitive equation to this. It's that if um, I decompress his chest and his sats and his blood pressure come up good, you know, that, that that's one thing. But to make that call, it's, um, I guess, it, yeah, it, it, it would depend on how big I thought the pneumothorax was and whether um, it's going to be a short or a long flight. We, for a while, talked about the percutaneous and icing techniques you have in ICU and stuff. And I, I personally think they're actually superior because, you know, for um, moderate small pneumothoraces, I think they're far better. Um, and uh, the bigger ones, uh, I, I'm a bit of a traditionalist, so I still think the bigger tubes placed open are still the best. Um, but but we don't have those kits, so we, we still only have the surgical open technique. Um, and, and that's, that's generally what we would do. Yeah. Okay. So interesting that you mentioned some of those things while we're, while we're debating this and stuff, uh, you notice that he is more lethargic than previous. Um, and he's more difficult to wake up. Um, and when he wakes up, he's, he's more confused. Um, when, when he wakes up, he's a little bit on the agitated side, but if you stop stimulating him, he kind of drifts back off. When you look at his pupils, his his left pupil is a little bit uh, more dilated than the right. Uh, they both still react, although they're a little sluggish. 
Um, he was moving everything appropriately except that leg before. Um, and, and But now he's not following commands anymore. All right. So I, I think there's there's more signs now that he does have a neurocritical injury. Uh, his, you know, his coma scale is decreasing. His um, pupils may be having some asymmetrical response now. Um, and, and look, uh, are we surprised? He's had polytrauma, so... You know, um, having a head injury is is, is just going to complete the, the the hand of cards that he's that he's uh, been dealt with today. So I think that uh, we would move now then to prepare to anaesthetise him, um, and that's to give him a neuroprotective anaesthetic so that he has the best chance of having some meaningful um, recovery and certainly minimising any further uh, brain injury that he he may be uh, incurring. Um, uh, and like I said, it is a really tricky balance because, you know, out in pre-hospital trauma care with, with polytrauma, particularly with neurocritical injury as well as uh, exsanguinating injuries, whether it be into his belly or his chest, is that compromise is that uh, what takes priority is preserving the brain versus, um, uh, you know, the pre-hospital strategies that we do now for hemorrhagic shock would be to try to... Um, minimise uh, volume resuscitation and focus more on hemostasis. Um, but, you know, hemostasis doesn't improve necessarily the perfusion to your brain. So that's really tricky. Like, like I said, my wife had to deal with a very similar one recently. And she used vasopressors, phenylephrine, and um, some crystalloid to do the neuroanesthetic uh, to make sure that it didn't become hypotensive, uh, hypoxic during um, the RSI. Um, and that actually worked really well. So even though he had a ruptured liver, or sorry, ruptured spleen, and it had like a couple of litres of blood in his belly, um, she was still able to give him uh, an anaesthetic that was able to protect his brain. Um, and 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 you know he, he did continue to bleed during the transfer, but um, they, um, they they kept him alive and um, using basically vasopressors and a bit of crystalloid basically to support his circuitry status. That's a huge argument there. Some people would say that's a no-no. Other people would say, what else can you do? And the debates here in pre-hospital retrieval medicine have gone around around the circles. TXA was some evidence-based improvement to what we did, but, but until we have blood banks on the aircraft, then we still have that compromise about what you do in these trauma situations is how do you support someone's circulation, their perfusion, um, whilst not promoting their coagulopathy, whilst not promoting their um, their uh, their propensity to bleed from their ruptured spleen and so forth. So vasopressors and some crystalloid um, is one strategy that some of us do. Um, not a lot of great evidence base for that. There's some, but not a lot. Um, but, you know, like I talked right at the beginning of that, there, there's some models of care, certainly the, the French over in... Um, uh, in Europe, they, they have had that for some time using pre-hospital dopamine, noradrenaline and crystalloid to, to manage a lot of these traumatic resuscitations. Um, but they're often not two, three hours flight time out in the middle of rural Paris, you know, rural France somewhere. Um, but, but, but that's what they do. Um, and um, yeah, but, but certainly here uh, for that patient, they'd be getting an anaesthetic at this point. Okay, so what do you, what would you, what's your go to uh, to anesthetize a guy like this? Sure. So we have a yeah we have a very set protocol, 
And you can argue that's a good and a bad thing, but but anyway, we have a very set protocol and it involves only three drugs, which just makes it pretty simple to remember. Um, and so there, um, that actually does have some evidence base. There was some work out of Kent Surrey, uh, Kent Surrey Air Ambulance Service in the England looking at this this cocktail of protocol versus other cocktails, and it did seem to have more hemodynamic um, benefit. But so, so our induction agent is, is by default ketamine and then some fentanyl. Um, so it's normally actually fentanyl first, then the ketamine, and then rocuronium is our paralytic. We carry succimethonium, but it's not as a default in the protocol, um, and it's, it's really there for, I guess, people who... Traditionalists and that they—that's all they learnt with is succinylcholine or succinylmethionine. But I, I haven't used that for oh, five, six years now. It's essentially just that that cocktail of drugs. Now, some people would argue is that neuroprotective enough? Uh, that's an interesting debate. But um, in my experience, certainly looking at the literature, I think that there's 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 really um, uh, reasonable evidence to say that it's 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 a good neuroprotective combination. Um, some people would argue that, you know, I know there's a few debates I've had on, on online with a few surgeons over in America about whether ketamine will cause more injury or not. But uh, just remember this guy is hypotensive already. So giving him anything that makes him more hypotensive is definitely not going to be any good for his brain. Yeah, so, so those are the three drugs we normally use. Yep. Okay. So you go ahead and you give him that and you intubate him. Um, now, does this change your calculus with regard to the chest tube? Yeah, definitely. If I hadn't put a chest tube at this point, I would very soon after, and then probably ideally you should put one in before you do this. So, you know, the worst thing you can do is that, you know, you you, you just neglected the pneumothorax. You, you've had a difficult RSI intubation process and everyone's a little bit hyped up and, and you know, um, distracted. And then quickly the pneumothorax becomes a real problem and you have to deal with it straight away. So I'd, I'd say um, if you're going to go down, you know, mechanical ventilation and there had been a pneumothorax that you had somehow thought, oh, well, maybe it's going to be okay managing it conservatively, I'd say for the purposes of this case, uh, yeah, I would. Um, all right. So we've, we've addressed the chest. We've addressed his head, uh, at, at least as much as we can right now. Um, we haven't really talked about his belly so you're going to do a fast? Yeah, so so that would have been part of my initial first ultrasound is sure. quickly scan the chest, quickly scan the fast. And look, as you've probably seen, with a, lot, a high, a moderate to high pro- pre-test probability that there's going to be blood in his abdomen, it, it's pretty obvious. Like you, you, You'll see a lot of black floating around there and it won't be subtle. So if his degree of hypotension is a result of intra-abdominal bleeding, it... it it, it'll be pretty, um, what we call in Australia, dog's ball obvious. You are then presented with your next dilemma, is that, you know, what what do you do about it? You know, okay, you thought he was bleeding in his belly. Yes, you've confirmed he's bleeding in the belly. What, 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 what's, how does that change your management? It probably hasn't, to a degree, really changed what you can do anyway, unless you actually want to open him up there. There are some strategies which 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 we have talked about and, and some of us have done, there was a great paper published from a rural uh, retrieval service in South Australia where I, where I trained, where they looked at people who had pre-hospital traumatic arrest. One was an ectopic pregnancy lady that actually bled to death to, to the point of arrest. 
Uh, and there was other ones. I think there was a tra- couple of trauma ones, uh, motorbike accident, he'd bled into his pelvis and stuff like that. And and what do you do in that case? You know, So there are some, I guess, extreme manoeuvres which really are adopted from the military. And these are doing things like putting um, pressure point um, control over certain parts of your uh, circuitry anatomy to try to arrest bleeding. So this is aortic compression with your knee. Um, we've had, unfortunately, a few stabbings. I know in America you guys deal with this a lot more. Um, but but we do have a few stabbing injuries in remote areas and um, we, we've had to do this where, yeah, uh, you try to stop bleeding to the lower half of the body by compressing the aorta over the umbilicus, usually with your knee because your, your hands and your fists aren't often strong enough to maintain the pressure. And the military, have, have, you know, they've published a few papers on this. They've actually got the, military, the US military developed a tourniquet system to do this exactly called the abdominal tourniquet. Um, apart from that, in the preosmal retrieval setting, there's very little much else we can do. So I think we've addressed all his big issues, right? We've got his leg in a splint. We've we've looked at his belly, and it is what it is. Uh, chest tubes in place. He's intubated. So at this point, are you, you comfortable packaging him up and putting him on the aircraft? Yeah. Look, I, I think the, the the thing about packaging people for aircraft is basically you you want really to do as minimal intervention on the aircraft as you need to. So a really good package will be. Uh, basically make for a very uneventful transport. Um, However, situations can demand that speed is more important than doing all that, and that might be a whole number of logistical reasons. It might be the weather, it might be the actual patient's condition, so, you know, like if they've got a ruptured aorta or, or, you know, like an extradural hematoma, unless you actually want to try to evacuate it yourself, Um, then they need to get to where they need to get, you know, you know, yesterday that, that there's really no much time, and and um, and so the, the the ABCs is is really what we focus on. So is his airway controlled? Is his breathing controlled? And oxygenation well? And his circulation as stable as we can get it? Um, and 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 basically um, that they'd be the main things to to get that. In terms of the spinal care, I guess we've done an exam which didn't show any obvious spinal cord injury, but you never can be sure about that. So this is an interesting um, thing to share with the listeners is that in my state, we ditched the hard collar uh, seven years ago, and it was probably the best thing we've done in pre-hospital medicine in the world ever in history. Um, so we just use a soft collar now, and, and, I, and I know some states in America have actually adopted the same thing because the EMS directors have actually contacted me and you know we, we were communicating, and that's, that's, that, that's what they've chosen. So, so for our packaging of this patient, they'd get a soft collar, which basically says C-spine not cleared on a, on a bright yellow label on the front of the neck, and we put him in a spinal mattress. So this is a vacuum mattress, which is um, tough plastic uh, or, or nylon um, kind of like uh, body bag, essentially, with um, a lot of hard, polyster- hard um, polymer beads within the fabric or sorry within the kind of the casing and then you've got this port that you can suction out the air and what that does is it, it, it creates a vacuum that molds to whatever position you want to hold it to so you can mold the thing around the person's body and it's a really nice way because it um, allows the arms and legs to be kept in into one 
one single piece that can be moved easily and also all the wires and tubes and you know catheter bags and everything like that can all be kind of kept in that one package or within the confines of that and that just helps move the patient quite quickly so they'd get the spinal mattress soft collar um and yeah that's how we'd put them on the aircraft all right um now what are we talking i mean i know we haven't really said where this is and uh and everything and and i don't know that uh most of our listeners are going to have a real good idea of the geography of uh, northwest or northeast australia but uh what's what's their average flight time for a for a case like this are we talking about uh, yeah two hours or three hours? No, no, two hours two, yeah, two hours. hours okay two, two hours the longest we would do within our radius of of mission would be four five hours that would be the longest but that would be at the extreme of our radius of mission um, but but a typical one. So the, most of the cattle stations that we would fly to are within roughly a, a two-hour flight time, um, one to two hours. But but yeah, so so it, it'd be yeah probably uh, two hours. Um, and so yeah, that that obviously brings this issue about what do you do to try to keep person you know someone more stable and, and anaesthetized uh, during that two-hour transfer, and then, and the issues about what. The stresses of aeromedical flight are so we talked about the gas volume changes which which can be a bit tricky so like for example that vacuum mattress uh that will actually loosen the higher you go up because the the, the gas in it actually expands and therefore the thing loosens up so often we have to re 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 evacuate the air and make it um a vacuum again similarly with endotracheal cuff tubes um there's a bit of a debate a while ago, it's settled now, but pretty much a debate a while ago about whether you should put saline in the cuffs to avoid that expansion issue versus just traditional air. And it was settled a while ago after a few studies. But basically, um, we put air, just like you do you know, on the ground, and we measure the pressure, just like you do in an ICU. We measure it every 15 minutes or so, and particularly at the top of the climb where we know the altitude is at its maximum. And, and what will um, uh, happen there is that the air, because the, you know, the gas expands, you need to release the pressure from the cuff. Otherwise, it'll, it'll, it, it could cause tissue necrosis, which some studies have shown. And then on the way down, you then have to do the opposite. You actually have to put air back in because the gas will shrink. The, the volume of the gas will shrink, so therefore you'll lose the the sealing effect of the calf, and so therefore you're going to have to re-expand it. So that, that, they're just some particular things around aeromedical. And so, like you said, obviously the, the goal is to package the sky up so that your flight is relatively uneventful, um, other than a couple of these things that you mentioned that are u- sort of unique to aircraft um, transport. So we'll just say that you, you get this guy, you deliver him to a trauma center and hand him over um, you, I guess you just show up in the emergency department, just like a, a ground ambulance would and hand him over to the, to the trauma team or. Yeah, look, there's, there's a number of ways. So depending on the, 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 the actual patient acuity, it'll either be into an emergency department, hand over to the trauma team in the trauma bay, give your hand over, get the person over onto the, uh, ED or the ER stretcher switch the monitoring all over, you know, switch the ventilation over onto their machine and then get all your gear up and then go. That's one scenario. If they are of needing 
life-saving surgery, we will often deliver them into the operating theatre. So, um, for example, um, we, we had a woman with a bleeding ruptured ectopic and basically blood resuscitated her during transfer and they just waved us through and they just said, look, just bring them straight up to the OR and we'll do the handover in the, in the anaesthetic room. And that's, that's, that's another situation. Uh, another third handover would be into the ICU. So this is someone who's ventilated for septic shock or, or whatever, and uh, the ER, they, they don't, they don't want to do anything more because it's basically already been arranged. They're going to an ICU, and most of the stabilisation and, and critical care interventions have already been done, and so therefore the ER, you know, they, they, they don't feel that they're going to add anything more, so you just take them straight up into the ICU and hand them over an ICU. The fourth one, um, well, actually, there's about five more, Um but the fourth one would be into um, radiology. So this is sometimes that um, they need an urgent, say, CT head scan, and we'll bring them into the CT head scan, and then the decision will be made, well, will they go straight up to the neurosurgical um, theatre or will they go into ICU? So, so you know, so yeah, that's a good example where someone's deciding whether should they go up to have brain surgery or should they need neurocritical ICU. That's another one. And then the, the fifth one would be into cardiac um, angio suite. So I've done a few of that where they uh, get taken straight to cardiac cath um, or I'm picking up from cardiac cath because they've had a balloon pump put in or they've had some angio when it's now they need to go to have cardiothoracic surgery at a at another hospital. Then that, that, that we pick up and hand over in a different situation there. Yep. Very cool. Um, Brandon, do you have anything to add or any questions? Um, no, I think that was really interesting. It's interesting to compare, you know, I used to work as an EMT here, kind of the differences and, and similarities in how you approach a scene like this. I mean, it, there's a lot of differences because as, as a physician and being a little bit better equipped than a lot of our EMS teams would be, you're able to do a little bit more on scene and with these much longer, transport times it, it you know behooves you to do more because otherwise the patients you know may have a hard time getting to their destinations uh, but ultimately there's still the same goal of doing what you can and then getting the patient to you know definitive care which especially for you know surgical trauma like this will always be somewhere else <laughs> so it's kind of a uh, different routes to ultimately the same end i think yeah no look i think you're right transport or you know, pre-hospital medicine is. You're right. It is very similar around the world, and the goals. And and often, you know, we talked on a bit earlier about whether you know the role of pre-hospital physicians, whether there's you know that's that's a good or a bad thing. I guess it's it's often just historical and traditional that you know one part of the world did it this way, um, and other part of the world did it another way. And to be honest, communicating with American colleagues and EMT flight nurses. They do very similar job to what I do, and you know they're not physicians, and and you know they 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 do a great job, and and I think that there's a bit there's a bit of a debate that's been ongoing in Europe, well in in England and Australia about whether you know pre-hospital physicians are still um, uh, the best model, and whether other practitioners of other professions, whether it be nurses or paramedics, can can do the same thing, and and I personally think. That there's no reason why it shouldn't be, um, and 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 I think that there are a number of services here that are are kind of doing that or pushing the envelope. So there's a there's a service here in Queensland called Critical Care Paramedics, and and they really pretty much do the same job that I do. Um, but they're mostly based in 
in the capital city. Uh, same in Melbourne, there's a there's a there's an elite unit there called the MICA unit, the Medical Intensive Care Ambulance Unit, and um, um, that they, they they have do some, they basically do my job, and 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 they've been doing that for quite some time, and they're quite proud of it. And I really don't think there should be really some kind of interprofessional rivalry about. It. I think that's really quite sad. Um, and I think that you're right. We we try to do the same job, and it's a very similar skill set. Just because you're a physician under one name and or you're or whatever, it really doesn't mean you're somehow you know born to do it any better. Um, I had to learn on the job, and I had to learn through a number of ways. I did some uni qualification, uh, but there really isn't much specifically out there. But as I mentioned in my podcast, um, my last episode, there is an, uh, a diploma, a formal uh, exam qualification coming out in this specialty for Australia and New Zealand uh, next year. I was involved in some of the development of that, but but we are trying to. But, but most, of, as you can probably imagine, Brian, is that a lot of the pre-hospital training is on the job and it is self-taught. Um but um, yeah, it's 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 no different whether you're in America or or, or um, the outback. Yeah, um, yeah. So you mentioned yeah here in the states, it's typically uh, nurses and paramedics um, who are doing the pre-hospital, at least in flight. I do know of a couple places that fly physicians uh, on aircraft, um, and a couple places that fly nurse practitioners on aircraft. And the question I have I've had. Um, because I have a lot of friends who are flight nurses and flight medics is what exactly does uh, even a nurse practitioner, I mean, I'm a nurse practitioner. What, what am I adding to that, uh, that my friends who are flight nurses can't do? Uh, I think in the situations like you've described, I think certainly the remoteness and the long transport time, uh, I feel like there would be a additional benefit by having a more advanced provider, uh, there because you're really remote versus, um, you know, somebody where you're talking, 20 30 minute flight times um with a with a medical control a bit readily available but yeah look you, you know that that's one aspect of the debate and you know to say you have a more advanced practitioner who can do more diagnostic things more interventional things um because you have a longer period of being away from definitive care um and that's essentially the Franco-German model of, of pre-hospital retrieval is, is the idea is that you bring the hospital to the patient as opposed to the patient to the hospital. And, and look, to be honest, that there's pros and cons for that. You know, you, you can argue um, that that's a good thing. You can also argue is it is it a waste of resources? Is it does it actually add much? Does it does it actually improve outcomes? And there's there's kind of various studies that that show yes and no. Uh, and there's been studies comparing where you know. Pre-hospital RSI by paramedics versus pre-hospital RSI, or versus waiting to get to the hospital and having RSI. Does that actually make a difference? There's been some studies that say yes, uh, others that haven't seemed to show a difference, and others that have shown an adverse outcome. So, uh, sadly, as you know, in pre-hospital medicine, the science isn't great, and um, the nature of the environment makes doing good science in that environment difficult. So still, there's still a lot of opinion in in the field. Um, I personally think that 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 um, having a physician do it um, exclusively and and, and um, having that that level that doesn't necessarily make for any better service. I, like I said, you and I know many flight nurses, flight medics do exactly the same thing that I do as a physician, and and they've been doing it for years. 
um, you know, do balloon pump transfers, do mechanical ventilation, do RSI, manage difficult airways, all that kind of thing. Um, probably the only thing I'd say that I, I, I could add that maybe most of them at the moment don't have, but but I think there's no reason why they couldn't add that is, is those ultrasound skills um, because I do that in my medical work and so forth. And, and with ultrasound, you actually do need to practice and do it a lot um, to, to, to get good at it. And so therefore, if you're only doing it occasionally, you, you're not going to get good at it. So, but um, I don't see any reason why a paramedic or a nurse practitioner or whatever couldn't, couldn't get to that same level. And it's just uh, about being able to be given the position and the credentialing to do it and, and, um, and, and have that. So I, I personally don't think that there's any, um, huge advantage to having a physician per se it's just the model that we have here out of tradition um and uh, uh look you know i know some of my colleagues are not going to agree with that but I, I certainly think that communicating and um with the flight nurses and the, the medics over in other parts of the world who do yeah pretty much the same job for flying the same aircraft have to deal with the same problems um then you know they they do um as good a job as i would well it sounds um extremely interesting and it sounds like a lot of fun and if you ever decide that you want a nurse practitioner to come down uh, and and work with you give me a call uh, because it sounds like something that would be um, a really fulfilling and interesting job so <laughs> oh that's cool no worries no worries yeah i i actually we had um, the first cohort of aeromedical nurse practitioners um, start oh, seven years ago when I was one of the mentors assigned to, to kind of um, a couple of the practitioners and uh, helped her get through her um, qualification. Um, and so, yeah, look, I, I, I fully support the idea. I think that, that um, it's, it's certainly um, as achievable as anything else that we would do in pre-hospital healthcare. Well, I think that about wraps it up then for us. Um, Min, you have a po- you mentioned your podcast, and I know you have a blog. Do you want to tell folks where they can find you? Sure. So my blog's prehospitalmed.com, and you'll find the link to the podcast. There's a little um, little button there to get to the iTunes podcast. But, yeah, you can find me on iTunes. It's in the podcast library. If you search for prehospital and retrieval medicine, you'll um, see my little face pop up there. Um, and... Yeah, look, uh, thank you guys for having me on the show. And yeah, it's it's been good talking to you. All right. Well, thanks so much. And thanks, everybody, for joining us.